The passage of Scripture we'll be looking into today is found in Peter's second epistle and the first chapter. And we'll be looking at verses commencing with verse 12. The epistle that Peter wrote was an epistle that he was very much concerned to send to people because he realized that his days were numbered, and he did, of course, as we understand, die a martyr's death. And he was also very much concerned that people were tending to forget some of the basic things that they must not fail to remember. We are looking, therefore, into this passage of Scripture to simply remind ourselves of six things we must never forget. Now, he is particularly concerned in the passage that we will look into. He's very much concerned about the fact that people are beginning to treat the Old Testament scriptures and the teachings of the apostles in a way that is inappropriate. They are twisting the scriptures. Fundamental truths are being ridiculed. Biblical morality is being repudiated. And he wants to remind the people that the word of God stands firm and that we do not have the freedom to twist it, to ridicule it, to repudiate it, and assume that it will make no difference in our lives. In case you're wondering what the kind of concerns were that he had, let me give you three examples. One of the teachings of the apostles and something that comes so clearly in the Old Testament is that God exercises considerable patience with men and women. He does this to give them opportunities to come to their senses and repent. This particular doctrine of the patience of God, however, was being twisted by the people in Peter's day, and they were simply saying, God isn't patient, God is simply incompetent. It isn't that God is patient giving people an opportunity for repentance. It is simply that God can't control things anymore and things are out of his hands. Another example of the kind of thing that was happening was that all the way through the Old Testament and through the teachings of the apostles, there had been a tremendous emphasis on the fact that God is God, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. People were still using that kind of language, but they were living in such a way that they simply demonstrated that they didn't regard God as God, they didn't regard him as Lord of their lives. In other words, they felt it was perfectly all right to go and use all the terminology, but to live a life in flat contradiction to claims to acknowledging Christ as Lord. The third example that was concerning Peter was this. Right from the earliest days of the Old Testament and all the way through the apostolic teaching, there had been clear statements concerning God's view of sexual morality. But there were people in Peter's day who were claiming to have new insights. And the new insights that they were claiming they felt were superior to God's word. And so this meant that they no longer needed to be concerned about sexual morality as outlined in Scripture. They were perfectly free to engage in all kinds of sexual behavior as they wished. Now, these are just three examples of the kind of situation that obtained in Peter's day. I think you will immediately see the relevance of this ancient scripture to the days in which we live. For there are many people who are twisting what the Bible says about God's patience. There are lots of people who are mouthing the words of religion without living the life of those who acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. And what can we say about sexual morality? 
except to say that there's a very real sense in our culture at the present time where many people no longer feel that biblical sexual morality is relevant and they have discovered something higher and nobler and grander. Peter's response to that is simply to say this. Verse 16, with regard to the Scriptures. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. In other words, Peter is saying, listen, all those of you who think you can do an end run around the scriptures, all those of you who think you can ignore them with impunity, all those of you who feel that the Bible is irrelevant, I want you to understand something. That the Scriptures are profoundly significant, desperately important, and you ignore them, ridicule them, abuse them, and disobey them at your peril. That, I would submit to you, is a message for our culture at this time. With that in mind, then, let me identify three things for you from this passage that will help us understand what the Bible says about the Bible, what the Scriptures say about the Scriptures. First of all, the Scriptures are a body of truth to be embraced. In verse 12, Peter says this, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. Now, I'm going to emphasize this. The Scriptures claim to be a body of truth to be embraced. Now, when we say that the Scriptures are a body of truth, or when we talk about biblical truth, what are we talking about? There are many, many Scriptures that deal with this particular theme. I don't have time to get into them, but there's a cluster of words that gather around this word truth as relates to the Scriptures. Let me give you some of them. Validity. Reliability. Reality. Veracity. Accuracy, correct, right, honest, sincere, genuine, proper, righteous, holy. All these words, as you cluster them together, are simply saying that the Scriptures claim to be true, that they claim to be universally true which means if they are true and universally true, they are true and relevant for everybody. And that they talk about that which is valid, what they say is reliable, they are dealing with issues in a real way, and they are accurate in all that they affirm, there is an inbuilt veracity to them. The interesting thing, however, when we make statements like that is to realize that 66% of Americans answered in a recent poll that they did not believe that there was such a thing as objective truth. Two out of three Americans in the poll said they did not believe that there is such a thing as objective truth. Now, let me remind you of what Peter is saying here. You are firmly established in the truth 
that you have now received. Now, there's a conflict here. What may surprise you even more is that of those people who were asked the question, did they believe in such a thing as objective truth, of those who claim to be evangelical Christians, 53% of them said they did not believe in objective truth. Now, I'm assuming they probably didn't understand the question. Because it is very, very hard for me to believe that 53% of people who claim to be evangelical Christians don't believe in objective truth. Let me give you an example. Here is an objective truth claim of Scripture. Listen very carefully. It's not complicated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is an objectively true statement as far as Scripture is concerned. Let me give you another one. The scripture says that Christ died, was buried, and on the third day rose again from the dead. That is a statement of objective truth. Now, if a person says there is no such thing as objective truth, they cannot, under any circumstances, logically give assent to the fact that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and there's no way that they can logically give assent to the statement that on the third day, Christ rose again from the dead. See, the situation that we have in our culture right now is this, that we are so concerned about being tolerant that we will be tolerant to the exclusion of truth. This is how it works. We say, well, if such a thing is true for you, that's fine. But if it isn't true for me, it isn't. Therefore, what is true for me is true for me, but what is true for you is true for you. Then they take it a step further. What is true for me is true for me, and what is true for you is true for you. That is truth for you, and this is truth for me, which means we have now two truths. These two truths are of equal validity, because you are not greater than me, and I'm not greater than you. So now we have two truths of equal validity, even though they're mutually contradictory, which means, in effect, when we've got mutually contradictory things that are equally true, there is no such thing as objective truth. And that's where we are in our culture today. Now, if you speak out against that, you commit the worst of all horrible, horrible vices. You are intolerant. And the one virtue that remains in our culture today is tolerance. The tolerance that requires me never to say anything that may offend anybody else without ever explaining to me what is going to offend anybody else, which means my mouth is muzzled and I must never make a statement that suggests there is such a thing as objective truth. There is the dilemma for the Christian today. That is why perhaps 53% of the Christians in this poll said they didn't believe in objective truth because they didn't want to appear intolerant. When in actual fact, what it means is this. We understand what it is to allow people to believe whatever it is that they want to believe, and we will not engage in bigotry and intolerance against them. Even God gives people the freedom to be wrong. But whilst we will be tolerant of them having the freedom to believe whatever they believe, we will by no stretch of the imagination tolerate the nonsensical idea that mutually contradictory things are of equal validity because there is no such thing as objective truth. 
Now, I've spent too long on that, but I'm kind of getting worked up about it, as you can guess. Let me move, therefore, on a little more quickly. Let me talk to you about the uniqueness of biblical truth. There is such a thing as philosophical truth. Philosophers have been kicking truth around for many, many millennia. The thing about philosophical truth is this. It can only approximate on the truth. That means that it will get some things right, but it can only approximate for one very simple reason. It starts with man and doesn't start with God. It is man trying to figure out reality, whereas Scripture says reality is found in God, and therefore philosophical truth can only approximate to truth. Same with scientific truth. Scientific truth is designed to explore the creation and to a certain extent the creature. But it is not equipped to deal with the creator. Therefore, scientific truth can be brilliant in the exploration of the creation, to a certain extent, exploration of the creature, but is singularly ill-equipped to understand the creator. Therefore, philosophical truth and scientific truth may be true in certain aspects, but they are lacking and they are approximating, and biblical truth claims to be all about creator, creation, and creature that there is a God from whom we come, who made the world, who knows how it's supposed to work, who has put human beings in it, who knows how they relate to each other and to the world and to him and what he is saying to us. This is the body of biblical truth. That the scriptures claim is true for all people. We can take this a step further and talk about the application of biblical truth. But we're not now talking about scientific truth that we can put in a test tube. We're not now talking about mathematical truth that will finish up at the long of an incomprehensible equation. We're talking about biblical truth that is to be applied. What that means is it is to be taught, it is to be learned, it is to be believed, it is to be embraced, it is to be obeyed, and as a result of that, a whole lifestyle of behavior will develop based and predicated upon the truth as it is in the Word of God. So John, writing his third epistle, says this, verse 3, it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. What that means is people are prepared to say, I believe that the scriptures are a body of truth to be embraced. I've learned them, I've marked them, I've read them, I've inwardly digested them, I trust them, I obey them, and as a result of that, my lifestyle is predicated upon them, and I now live my life, and my final court of appeal is the body of truth, the word of God. Now Peter gives us an example of this himself. Verse 13 of our reading, he says, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you'll always be able to remember these things. What's he talking about? He is talking about the tent of this body. <laughs> What he's saying is that I know my days are numbered. If tradition is correct, he was crucified as his Savior was, 
and his master was, but he said that he wasn't worthy to be crucified as his master was, so Peter insisted on being crucified upside down. Tradition tells us that. Now, the point is that as he is looking forward to his imminent martyrdom, he describes it as follows, the tent of my body. As long as I live in the tent of my body, what he's saying is this, while I'm down here, my body is like a tent. And one of these days, I will no longer live in the tent of my body. What he's suggesting is that his body is being dismantled. And that is a true truth for all of us. Look around. There's a lot of tents in various stages of dismantling. Don't point any fingers at anybody. Fact of the matter is that Peter believes this, that he is not just body. That when he is dead, he is not done with. Neither does he believe in reincarnation. Now, there are some people who say when you're dead, you're done with. And there are some people who say you get another chance and you come back as something else. And there are some people who say, no, your body is a tent. It is dismantled. While you live in it, this is the tent of your body. And when the tent is dismantled, you continue to live and you move on and you stand before God. And somebody will say, well, reincarnation is true for me, therefore it is true. And some people say, when you're dead, you're done with this too. To me, therefore it's true. They can't all be true. So what we're talking about here is a man who has embraced the truth. And embracing the truth, he is mixing it with faith, he is being obedient to it, and he is living in the good of it, and he is facing martyrdom with equanimity. How does he do it? Because he's walking in truth. So the first thing that we notice from this passage of Scripture is that the Scriptures are a body of truth to be embraced. Now, here's the second thing I want you to notice. The Scriptures are a record of God's activity to be believed. What the Bible is really saying is that God is not remote from this world, but that God is active in this world and that he intervenes in the affairs of this world and he is busy in the lives of men and women in this world. And the Scriptures are a record of God's activity that is to be believed. Now, there are three ways of looking at this from this passage of Scripture. Notice that Peter, first of all, talks about himself and his fellow apostles. And this is how he puts it in verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The claim of Scripture is this, that certain writers of the Scriptures were eyewitnesses, and that their witness is credible and authentic. Now, Peter talks here in the plural. He is referring to a particular incident that he and James and John enjoyed together. The particular event was what we commonly call the transfiguration. When the glory of the Lord Jesus shone through his humanity and they got ever so wonderful a glimpse of the fact that God was manifest in the flesh. It was something that was riveting for them. It was something that was life-changing for them. We know that because they continued to give testimony to it. Well, James didn't. He got his head chopped off. It's difficult to give testimony to anything when you're headless. But as far as the other two was concerned, they spoke 
loudly and clearly about it. Peter here refers again to that amazing event when they saw the dramatic, majestic glory and they heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. John, of course, in the beginning of his gospel, the fourth gospel, he talks about the fact that we carefully examined and scrutinized him and we beheld his glory, the glory that was unique, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Now, these two men are giving credible, authentic eyewitness accounts. Some people, of course, years later, profess to know better. That's interesting to me. How can anybody claim to know better than those who were eyewitnesses of the events? And remember this, that these men who give eyewitness testimony to the events that they're referring to died for that belief. James, as I said, was beheaded. Peter, in all probability, was crucified upside down. John, as a very, very old man, suffered exile on the Isle of Patmos. They did not recant. They did not repudiate. They did not budge one inch from their testimony. We saw it. We know it. It's true. So what we're talking about now, as Peter says, is not cleverly invented stories. We're not talking about cleverly invented stories designed to befuddle, designed to confuse, designed to deceive. No, no. What we're telling you is I witness truth. But then he says something really quite remarkable. Verse 19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Now, granted, this is not an easy passage in the original language, the Greek in which it was written. And it's a little difficult to translate it, but my understanding of it is this, that Peter is saying, valuable as the testimony of apostolic eyewitnesses is, there is something even more valuable, and that is the testimony of the prophets. That's apparently what he's saying. We have the word of the prophets made more certain. Now, there's no doubt about it that the Hebrews did value immensely the words of the prophets. And we should do the same. Let me tell you why. For a prophet to be credible in those days, one test was required. If in their prophetic ministry they predicted that God would do certain things, the test was a very simple one. If it comes true, they're a real prophet. If it doesn't, they're a phony. The life expectancy of a prophet was rather limited in those days because if they proved to be a false prophet, they took them out and stoned so a wise prophet had to be very, very sure that he was prophesying correctly, otherwise he would come to an untimely end. Now we have in the Old Testament a succession of prophets. And among other things, they predicted things. And the credibility of these prophets is in the fact that they predicted things that actually came true. And Peter puts tremendous weight on this, and he says this, if you have got a body of prophets who are prophesying and predicting all kinds of things, and they consistently, relentlessly come true, there is a certain credibility that attaches to them. 
Now, let me give you an example of how this works. I'm going to risk masquerading for a moment as a prophet. Listen carefully. Here comes a prophecy. Tonight, somebody will come to your front door. <laughs> now that's, I'm sure that's a, very exciting for you. Now, the big question is whether I'll be right or wrong. Let me go a little further. He will come on the stroke of midnight. Let me go a step further. He will be six feet, seven and three quarter inches tall. You say, you're going out on a limb now, aren't you? Oh, you ain't heard nothing yet. He will have a banana in one ear and a cucumber in the other. Now then, I'm going off the deep end. The problem, of course, is this. The more information I give you in terms of prediction, the less chance there is of me being true. What Peter is saying is this. The Old Testament is full of prophets who said what God was going to do, and he did it. And that is an establishing of the authenticity of what they had to say. But then he goes even further, and he tells us in this passage of Scripture something that was going on in these prophets. He said that these prophets did not dream these things up themselves. So in the same way that he claims that the apostles were not thinking of cleverly invented stories, he says, as far as the prophets were concerned, that the things that they prophesied in Scripture were, did not come about through their own interpretation or their own origination. But they were holy men who spoke from God, listen, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along there is the word that describes what happens when you're in a boat and you hoist your sails and you get a following wind and your sails fill with wind. What he's saying is this. Those prophets weren't just men who could predict the future. Those prophets were holy men who were in touch with God who by his Spirit was able to take them like the sails of a boat and fill their sails with the power of the Holy Spirit and speak to them authentic truth. That is why they were credible. That is why what they had to say was true. When we think in terms of the prophets, we've got to accept the fact that in the same way that different sailboats have different sails, different shape, different size, different colors, the prophets come in different sizes and different shapes and different colors. They come from different cultures at different times. They use different language. They will use a different literary genre. And all the differences are just like the different sails. The different sails are secondary. It is the empowering of the Holy Spirit, inspiring these people that produces credible, authentic truth in the Scriptures. And so Peter says that the Scriptures are not to be ignored, not to be repudiated, not to be ridiculed, not to be improved upon. The Scriptures are a body of truth that is to be embraced. They are a record of God's activity that is to be believed. Incidentally, Peter doesn't mention this, but I think it's appropriate to mention it, that when Jesus rose again from the dead and walked on the road to Emmaus alongside two friends, and they invited him for dinner, and at the end of dinner, they asked him some questions, and he said, have you got a Bible here? And they said, we've just got the Old Testament. So they got the Old Testament out, and beginning at the beginning of the Old Testament, 
And working is through to the end, Jesus explained to them from the Old Testament, listen very carefully, the things concerning himself. Jesus gives witness to the authenticity of the scriptures. The prophets give witness to it. The apostles give witness to it. And they are all witnessing to the fact that God is not remote. He is involved. He does intervene. And he's active in the lives of men and women. And if you want to know what God is like and what God does and what God does for people, then here's the book. Read it. And apply it to your own life. The third point here. The scriptures are a light in a murky world to be heeded. A light to be heeded in a murky world. Let me read to you now again from verse 19. We have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Notice what he says about the word of God. He said, the word of God is like a light shining in a dark, the word is murky place. A murky place. A messy, dirty, use a good old north of England word, mucky world. Now, I don't know if you've been following the internet recently or reading your paper recently or checking on the television recently. Would you say that there are some elements of murky muckiness about our culture at the present time? And would you say, will somebody please shine a clear, bright light of credible, authentic truth and reality, sincere, honest, genuine, honest, to God, truth, would somebody please do it in this murky, mucky mess? And God says, sure, I will. I'll give you my word. I'll give you my word. Read it. Mark it. Learn it. Inwardly digest it. And it will shine, touch a brilliant reality in the murky, muckiness of your contemporary society. The Word of God is a light that rebukes a murky world. The Word of God tells us this, and it's an impalatable truth, but I think deep down in our own hearts we know it is true. Men love darkness rather than light. Is it true to say that with all the salacious detail, that's a word that nobody knew a week ago, all the salacious detail that we have at the present Would it be true to say that there's something in us that says, tut, tut, isn't that awful? And then we read it. Could it just be that the light of Scripture shines on us and says, it's a murky world, and you're caught up in it more than you realize. What you need is a light shining in a murky world. The Scriptures are a light that reveals the way to go. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. True to say that we need some light on the situation. And is it true that we need a lamp to show us the pitfalls that we can so easily fall into? And the answer is, oh boy, do I need it. Well, you got it. 
The scriptures are a light that requires us to pay attention. That's what Peter says. We do well to pay attention to it. Sometimes you're driving along and you see a flashing yellow light and you do well to pay attention to it. It is a warning. There is some kind of obstruction on the road. Slow down. And sometimes in your rear view mirror, you get a flashing blue light. And your reaction is, what did my wife make me do now? And you do well to pull over to the side and get a word of correction. And the scriptures will do that for you. They will give you a warning sign, obstruction ahead. Don't do it. And sometimes they will pull you over to the side and say, you did it. And we do well. We do well to pay attention to a light shining in a dark. The scriptures are a light that reminds us that the day is almost here. Listen to what it says. We do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. What is this day that is dawning? What is this day that is dawning? Romans chapter 13 tells us. It says that we're living in the light But the day is about to dawn when Christ returns and establishes his eternal kingdom. And you won't learn that from philosophical argumentation. And you will not discover that Christ is returning from scientific observation. But you will find it from divine revelation. And the one hope for our poor old creaking world is that Christ will return and establish his eternal kingdom, and it will be like the night is over, and the day has come, and this is something that we read in scriptures, and it is in the light of the coming kingdom that we live today. And finally, it says, you do well to pay attention to it until the morning star rises in your heart. What, pray, is the morning star? Revelation chapter 22, verse 16 tells us, I, Jesus, am the bright morning star. Notice what he says. He says, the morning star rises in your heart. And what it means is this. As you turn consistently to God's word, you discover the refreshing and the renewing and the revitalizing like the dawn where the morning star shines brilliantly in your heart. The refreshing and the renewing and the revitalizing that comes through discovering who Jesus is and what he is doing in your life. May I respectfully ask you a question? How seriously do you take the fact that we have in our hands something that claims to be God's word for the human race. How seriously do you take that? Do you dismiss it and saying it's just a bunch of old wives' tales? Do you say, I don't think it's anything more than cleverly invented stories? Or do you say, oh, no, 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 it claims to be truth, and I believe it is true. I don't believe in absolute truth, but I believe it is true. I haven't figured it out. I'm all confused, but I think it has some good things to say. Or do you say, oh, no, I believe it from cover to cover. Don't ever read it. Or do you say, oh, I read it a lot. Just don't like doing it. Maybe what we all need to be reminded of is this. 
that God has given us a more certain word in the prophets, in the apostles, and in Christ himself. And it is true truth that is true for everybody. To be embraced, believed, obeyed, and lived out in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we bow quietly in your presence. Now we thank you for your word. We do apologize for the fact that so often our attitude towards your word has been considerably less than it ought to be. But we also recognize that it does claim to be true. It does claim to be an authentic record of what you do in people's lives. And we know intuitively and experimentally that when we obey it, it brings joy and delight to our hearts. It shows us the way to go in a murky world. Would you, therefore, dear Lord, please, by your Holy Spirit, fill the sails of our hearts so that we will sail on into life, living the truth. We pray in Christ's name.